Welcome back to another episode of Champions of Security. I'm your host, Jacob Garrison, and today's guest is Sean Wright. Sean is a seasoned application security professional. He started off as a developer. He mostly focuses on web application security with a special interest in TLS and supply chain attacks. In his free time, he also likes to pursue security-related research, so this is a man with a lot of information. It's going to be a great conversation today. All right. Well, Sean, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to have you here. Good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be part of this. So for everyone listening, Sean wrote a blog on his site, and the blog was Manual Code Reviews, Is It Time to Move On? And today we're going to dive into that because it's something that probably upsets some people, the idea of no longer looking at other people's code or no longer reviewing other people's code manually. Now, not spending engineer time reviewing it. And no, I don't want to give away all the details. Sean's the one who wrote it. So, so Sean, will you uh, justify your position so that we can tear it down? Uh, I'm wrong. Uh, I apologize right away. <laughs> um, I, I knew before I published that it was going to be maybe perhaps somewhat controversial. What I was surprised by was that those criticizing it, the, the fields that were coming from wasn't necessarily um, focused on application security, but more people responsible for red teaming and pen testing that. that, that that's one area I found quite interesting. I wasn't expecting that. Um, but the idea behind the blog post is actually sort of someone I'm mentoring, they got asked, well, they'll ask me the question, how do you do a a code review. What what do you do to do a secure code review? And my answer was, well, I think we passed that point. If if we're having to ask ourselves, how do you go do a code review? Um, there's no explicit document. It's going to change line by line, uh, system by system, even language by language, um, and it's going to be different from person to person. Um, and it just kind of sparked this thing where I've felt that I need to to create a blog post about it to share my thoughts and opinions on it. Doesn't mean I'm right. Doesn't necessarily mean I'm wrong either, but um, it's my opinions. Um, and rule, anything that goes on the internet is true. So isn't it right? <laughs> but, uh, nature of being on the internet? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but um, I'm many times wrong. So if, if I'm wrong, um, I'm more than happy to be challenged and, and, and kind of counted like why people think I'm wrong. Um, but one of the things I've seen around code reviews is so many things get past code reviews. You look at it and you go, well, this should have been picked up in the code review. And this should have been picked up in the code review. Um, and that's why I'm not a, a big fan of code reviews. I've never been a huge fan of code reviews. There's, there's so many caveats to a code review that it's only as good as the person reviewing it. And even still, things like, are they having a bad day? Are they in a rush? There's so many variables that if you're going to rely on code review, it's, it's in my opinion, not the best approach. Um, so I kind of went into that uh, a bit more in, in the blog post. Now, to caveat that, and probably going to sound a bit of a... a, a a silly thing to say when I'm saying don't do code reviews. What I think is a much better approach is doing something like glass box testing 
white box testing, where you combine the code with actual functional testing. And that way you, you can start delving into rabbit holes and see things that kind of catch your eye and look at the code and, and get a much better take. To me, that's probably where you're going to get a lot more value. Um, you can see these things happening in action. Now, I know when I said this, some people call, call that a code review. Um, and again, this is the whole problem is, what is a code review? To me, it's having a bunch of code, looking at a code without a running application. So this is something you do probably as part of a, a get merge, um, whatever source code management you're using as part of that review before it gets merged in. So you're just looking at lines and lines of code. Um, to me, that's very boring. <laughs> I want to get my hands dirty. I want to tinker with things. So I'm going to be a lot more vested and interested in tweaking and playing around rather than just looking at lines of code. Other people are great at looking at lines of code. Um, but yeah, so by tinkering around and changing variables, you can actually then start delving into the code a lot better and see in real time rather than trying to follow lines and lines of code and try to work out what's happening here and what's happening there. Um, and then with things like debuggers, you can change things really easily and see the result a lot quicker than trying to write it down on paper or manually go and work it out in your head and that kind of thing. So I like where your head's at. And I want to just ask a question then, which is, would it be worthwhile to have this pre-built library of things that often break code? You know, and then you test all of those inputs for white box and black box testing. So you have this this test suite that tends to break things. And then additionally, you say, okay, we just merged this code. Let's go. And I have a suspicion that this edge case might cause a problem. I have a suspicion that this will cause a problem. And then rather than trying to, to your point, work it all out on a piece of paper, write it down, think about it, you know, look at the code line by line. You just go in and say, okay, if I do this, is it accounted for? Is that? Is that a summary of what you're suggesting or am I missing anything with that, uh, you know, with that approach? Yeah, kind of that. So, um, what, one of the other points I raised, and this is kind of why you need to get to those, those, those edge or those tasks and, and automate them as much as possible. We, we're getting to a point where the way we develop to, well, we're not getting, we are at a point where the way we develop today is completely different to like 15, 20 years ago where code reviews were really important there. But when we did those, we, we had lots of time. We had these big releases. We didn't go, okay, well, we're releasing today and then maybe tomorrow and then uh, on the next day or next week or whatever. So the, the amount of code going out and the time from when you code something to actually being in production is a lot shorter. It's getting shorter and shorter. So the only way we're going to solve this is automation and code reviews if done correctly when done correctly and this is part of the problem is um they need to take a lot of time especially manual code reviews pure manual code reviews that take a lot of time um and when you're pushing people to push things out to production quicker quicker guess what code reviews are no longer as thorough as they are so yeah having those tests uh automated and the other benefit of having those tests is if you then come back and change some functionality in that code, you don't have to go really do go through all that code again or worry about, oh, what about if this happens or that happens? You've got those tests to catch those cases. So 
the line is going to be CICD killed the manual code review. And that's, that's the stance we're taking is that it's just become too much volume, too much to handle, not enough resources to handle it. And too much business impact if you're going through and saying, hey, halt everything. I need to go through and read every single line of code. You know, you're you're creating too much turmoil internally. And so we need a better system, a system that doesn't rely on people like yourself that can find those errors because um, people like yourself are hard to find. There's not that many of them in the world that have the experience that you have. And I, I'm not trying to make you embarrassed here. I'm just saying, you know, it's, it's a statement of fact. So... <laughs> Another statement of fact is I'm horrible at code reviews. Like I'm not good. <laughs> so I'm the last person you probably want to have a look at the code. Like, I, as I said, I'm more tinkery things, but code reviews, like I, my attention span doesn't allow me to go <laughs> look at lots and lots of code where other people are great. And that's one of the other problems with code reviews is it's, as I said, it's all going to be down to the person reviewing it. Um, well, often going to be down to the person reviewing it and how do you then say, okay, well, here's a process for going through a code review. What what's the process going to look like? It, it like how are you going to cater for the different functionality and all of that? Um, so it's it's very difficult, and only something that comes with experience and all of that kind of stuff. Um, there's another interesting thing, and initially when it came out, I was like, nah, I I don't know, I'm not too sure. Um, but now I'm actually quite a big fan of it is something called SEMGRIP where you now looking for known bad code um, and that's done in an automated fashion. So Can you give an example of known bad code uh, just so everyone has an idea of what you're talking about? Yeah, so but the example I always like, love to use is um, certificate validation. So you have a certificate error, you go off to Stack Overflow, someone has given an answer, Someone copies and pastes it, puts it into production, and voila, certificate error has gone away and everything works. Except for that code they've now copied has disa completely disabled certificate validation. So there's libraries such as uh, Apache Commons, uh, sorry, the Apache HTTP client um, that has different validators, and one of them is disabled certificate validation. Um, so you can look for that explicit code that does that. And then that should be a media flag in, in any of your systems. This is bad, known, known bad code. Don't do it. Like, so it, would it, in that case, would it have to be the full snippet from Stack Overflow exactly as it was written on the site? Or if you were to tweak some lines but still disable the certificate, you know, would it pick up on that? Yeah. So it it's, as the name suggests, it's grep. So it's kind of like grepping in your code. So it's pretty cool. It's pretty well done. Um, has signatures, so it will account for some difference in um, things like white spaces and that kind of thing. It's also how you write that signature to detect it. But when it detects, it also gives context behind it. So it's not just like you're going using grep to grep through your code. It's given context like different categories and that kind of thing. It's it's pretty re uh, well done in my opinion. Cool. Cool. And so when we're thinking about and there's a lot of points I want to bring up, but one thing is borrowing code from others and, and automating code reviews. And, and so will you give your take on why don't we just submit all of our code to chat GBT and let chat GBT review it? 
or why don't we let ChatGPT write all of our code? Let's uh, let's explore that. You know, there is this thing that's trending right now, the artificial intelligence engine. Uh, can we talk about the pros and cons of relying on that sort of technology to handle code reviews or or even code generation? Sure. Um, it's going to take all our jobs and we're going to lose all our jobs. <laughs> no, it starts. All right, let's um, end the episode. <laughs> no, there's a lot of hype around that. That's probably a, another debate. Um, so one of the interesting things was, I don't know, I can't remember which um, engine it was. I think it might have been ChatGPT or Googlebot or, or one of them, um, or maybe even Copilot. I can't remember. Um, but there was a, a study or research or some, something of that sort done on the code within that. So they asked it to generate a bunch of code, and it did. The code was insecure. The ironic thing is that engine knew what secure code looked like. So it's a risk from a developer's going off to this, um, taking that code that it generates, and it's probably assuming that, you know, this is generated by AI, a well-known brand, Etc. So it's going to be secure, and then putting that into your your system, um, and that to me is one of the biggest risks: is how how well are the the models behind all this going to handle insecure code? Um, as I mentioned, they they know what insecure code looks like because if you provide code to it, um, they can tell the the vulnerabilities in that. So. How do you mesh those two things together? Um, it seems like that's not happening. Interesting. So have you have you heard of an instance where somebody asks, you know, a, a chat GBT or, or some other AI engine, uh, AI site to generate code, feeds it back and says, tell me where it's insecure, and then it immediately flags its own insecurities? Have you heard of that that feedback loop occurring? No, not, not yet. It's like... I think we're still really, really early in, in the whole thing. So we've got like, I mean, what all the pilots for, for GitHub has been out for about a year now. Um, and then I imagine like ChatGPT and Googlebot and all that's going to grow. I think Google just actually released some some kind of AR coding stuff as well. Um, I saw news uh, yesterday or, or this week sometime. Um, I think we're still in early stages and a lot of these things are still developing as we go. So hopefully we will get to a scenario like that. Maybe it is possible. So if anyone knows, I would love to do. Um, but I think it's still very disjointed. Like a lot of the stuff with these engines, you got to learn how to ask it the right way and all kinds of things. So we're still in very much a discovery phase um, around AR. So I, I view them more as a kind of tool to help, but I certainly wouldn't become reliant on them just yet. Yeah, yeah. And then you run into, you know, organizational security or licensing issues about, hey, do we really want to feed our entire code base to this large language model so that it has the context to answer our developers' questions? Do we trust all of that sitting, you know, on the back end of whoever created this application? Uh, and so do you think that organizations are uh, are going to take a stance on either we don't use chat GBT, we don't feed it our own code, you know, we only use it for new feature development, or what do you think that relationship will be to try to maintain, you know, the, the security and the privacy of their own code base? 
So we've already seen it already. Um, Samsung's taken the precedence of banning ChatGPT. Um, they, there were employees pasting sensitive internal um, data into ChatGPT. So that resulted in them just taking a hard line stance and saying, we're banning it outright. Um, and I think that there's one or two other companies who have done something similar. So it's definitely a legitimate concern. Um, we don't know how all that data has been handled in the back end, or at least I'm not aware. Um, and yeah, if if I'm one of those execs, that were, well, certainly a security executive at one of those organizations, it's certainly be something that I would be worried about. Um, like, you're the last thing you want is any of your intellectual property being leaked through some AI model once and that. Um, there is a kind of interesting take on this though, but it is costly. Um, Microsoft, I think, I think it was Microsoft, are now providing or going to provide a service that allows you to have private instances. So maybe that's something that organizations will look to to kind of caveat this whole worry about where your data is going behind the scenes. So if you have your private instance, I'm assuming there would be way better protection around your data. Um, what that looks like, if it's like on-premise or in your own infrastructure or in their SaaS offering, probably don't know. But um, that's something that I, I think would largely mitigate this. But the costs are apparently just pretty ridiculous like four times or something like that so yeah it'll be interesting to see where it ends up yeah yeah because with a private private instance you're not helping train their model right it's a large language model and, and yeah now all of a sudden everything you feed it doesn't help it so they're strictly providing a service and so all of a sudden they want to make money so it becomes it, that, a business proposition it also could then become a problem for yourself because now you, you're kind of tainting some of the data just to be specific to your organization. You're not getting, like, say, for for example, like Thread Intel. If you're just tainting everything for your organization, you're not getting what's hap trends happening elsewhere that could be helpful to your organization. So that's probably a caveat as well to think about. Maybe they've already counted for that. I don't know, but yeah. Yeah, as time goes on, the data that you're using to answer questions is increasingly outdated and yep. you make a Google search, you realize that you're six years behind everybody else on, on yep. whatever the new thing is. So I, I would love to circle back to the, uh, the code reviews thing. And, and one point you mentioned that I'm just curious about, you said that the red team pen tester types were the ones that were being the most harsh about the need for code reviews. Is that, is that true? And what were they saying? Yeah, well, it's just from what I saw. So those, those largely advocating, looking at their, their roles, um, it appeared to be there were more pen testers or, or red teamers. Um, and my memory's bad, so I can't exactly recall what they were saying. Um, but largely they, they viewed code reviews as something necessary. Um, I think it's maybe because... Things have been found before in, in just manually reviewing code. Um, also, as I said, beginning, what is a code review? Because some of them were indicating that um, a running app, along with the code, is a code review. Um, where I'm probably more more traditional, where, as I said, manual, bamba line code, code review. 
So I think it's also a difference in not being in the the kind of realm of working with developers, going through the whole process and dealing with some of the frustrations that you can kind of find, find maybe from both ends, both from a developer as well as security person point of view. Um, I don't think many developers are a massive fan of code reviews. Be wrong. Certainly not when I was a developer, <laughs> I hated them. Um, and I think I was not alone. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah, I just found it interesting. And I mean, they, they did have some valid points, um, but I think we, we need to reassess where we are at with that and we need to move on. Like knowledge evolves, uh, approaches to things need to, needs to evolve as well. Yeah. And I think that the difference between a code review for a, a web application and the things that you're looking for for the security of a web app are also fundamentally different than a code review for, say, some embedded software. Um, yep. If you look at things of that nature, there's not as much threat intel. It's more about are our algorithms correct? Is the system going to behave appropriately? And there's a lot of system level testing and trying to break it all the time. Um, and and it's not it's not the same thing as in a web app where they say, hey, do we have known OWASP top 10 type vulnerabilities? You know, do we have open source packages that are a threat? It's sort of a, a fundamentally different approach. And so when I was doing embedded software development, uh, code reviews were helpful because there were certain algorithms that you needed to get right, you need to look at. Whereas in the, in the web application world, uh, it seems to be there's a lot more tools available to you for that automation, a lot of things to, to facilitate it. And... And so one of the things you brought up in your blog was talking about, um, or I guess on your website in general, there's a lot of stuff around third parties and supply chain attacks and, and those types of things. So um, as a segue, I would love to, to dive into your supply chain attack that you did at Security Scotland. And you did this, so for everyone listening, Sean did this uh, presentation where he talked about supply chain attacks. And it was 2018, I think. You're talking about importing dependencies and, and ways that people break in. So can we talk about, you know, how, how would a code review uh, prevent a supply chain attack? Is it even possible? What is a supply chain attack? And can we make that, that transition there and, and help people understand why manual code reviews are, are impractical, essentially, for that sort of thing? Yeah, sure. Um, so good luck trying to do it manually. <laughs> it's bad, so um, I, I don't mean that in the, a bad way. So if you go look at modern web apps, um, the amount of vulnerabilities they pull in is just mind-boggling sometimes. Like I don't know the, the exact stats, but if you're looking for a probably a, a lightweight web app, you're probably looking at at least 20 dependencies, at very, very least, like some, some lightweight, web apps especially if it's like javascript npm probably pulls in half the internet um At and the problem is yeah <laughs> uh the, the problem is not so much the dependencies that you include but it's also the dependencies of the dependencies or transitive dependencies sometimes referred to and then those have dependencies and and on it goes so there's just this massive web of dependencies and then you got to go through each one and try assess if they have known vulnerability and then assess is that vulnerability 
specific to or exploitable in your web app and you can quickly see how maybe you include five libraries but those each have 10 of their own dependencies and maybe more so you, you now got 15 dependencies that you have to go and review and make sure that you don't have known vulnerabilities and if there are then go and assess in your code where they could be exploited and you'll quickly see that that's not going to be scalable um, and that's just for a small web app talking a large web app you're talking hundreds of on of libraries and yeah i, I go through this dependency how um one of the problems that i've really faced when trying to review these st things manually um but from the result of the tool it's just trying to assess the information out of it. Like, where is the vulnerability? How easy is it to exploit? How do you even exploit it? And it's doing it for one of them is probably going to take you better part of half a day at least. And now you want to times that, but I don't know how many. You can quickly see how it's not going to scale. And that's, again, one, one app. So suddenly having tooling so some some tooling like Veracode will actually look at the um dependency know your source code and then actually see if that the vulnerable piece of that dependency is called within your source code i can't explain how much that helps because now you can say yes that's the one we have to fix because we know it's exploitable in our code and you can start looking at those trying to do all of that manually it's just not going to get get anywhere Fucking scale. Yeah. Yeah. Think about the ratio between how large development teams are versus how large security teams are. And uh, it is not conducive to manual code reviews and diving down those rabbit holes for every single vulnerability. It's also, it's not the most efficient use of a resource. Like people are expensive and having a machine doing that's going to, A, do a far better job because it's repetitive monotonous work and humans aren't generally good at that i'm, I'm not uh, <laughs> and it's it's not exactly like rocket science to go take a a plug in a version plug it into nvd or something like that get a cv tied together like it's not exactly a massive skilled job so you have skilled expensive resources doing something that is easily achievable by a tool doing that. Um, and they can instead be focused on the manual side of investigating any sort of vulnerabilities that come up that you may be concerned about and how exploitable it is and what. Yeah, and, and so when we think about that point you just brought up, let's say that you have some tooling and it identifies a, a list, we'll call it 100 vulnerabilities just for a round number. Um, and and you know that those are not all going to get fixed in your code base, right? It's, it's just not realistic for your specific organization. How would you recommend then going through and sorting which ones are most important? Um, like, how do you justify, hey, these 25, you know, are really important um, and need to be done first? What, what does that look like? Because um, that's the process that's going to be a little more uh, require a little more expertise, right? A little more knowledge about where you should really start. 
Yeah, so that one's been quite difficult and challenging, um, but I think we're getting to a point where we, we have a lot of information to help us. So in the past, you would probably look to the, the CVSS score, and let's let's face it, the CVSS score has been kicked kicked around and kicked out quite a bit, and rightly so. Like so, when you're just having a a number come about for a risk kind based um, scoring, it's it's not achievable. Like there's so many caveats that you need to take into account. Um, so there's that. So the first thing is you need to not just take the uh, at value CVSS score, which I think a lot of people do. You need to also adapt it to your environment. So something that may be easily exploitable ordinarily is suddenly a lot harder because you have a different environment, different things in, in, in place and all that. So that's why I much prefer looking at the vector, the CVSS vector, because that gives me an indication of what's involved. Is it a network exploitable? What what does it mean if it's exploited? Does it impact the integrity, confidentiality, all that kind of stuff? And then you tweak it for your environment. And then that will give you a, a more accurate rating. Notice how that's a score, but a rating, a vector that you can then use for environments. And then other things you can look to is like EPA, EPSS, the exploit, exploit predictability subscoring system. I think that's what it stands for. But basically, it gives you, it starts giving a score of how likely this vulnerability is to be exploited. So now you have CVSS, which is more or less your impact, and then the, the likelihood, and voila, you now got a much better accurate rate well much better rating would say accurate much better rated for, for risk and then you got things like the CISA I think it's CISA the known exploited vulnerabilities but these are vulnerabilities that the US government publishes that are known to be exploited again likelihood goes up so you can then start combining all these different things and have a much better idea of how much of a risk it provides. And then lastly, you can look to things like um, the the threat modeling scoring type thing. So OWASP has a threat threat score. I forgot what it's called, but if you go Google it, you'll you'll find it. And it's it's kind of like CVSS, but you you can rate different areas and then you end, eventually end up with a high, medium, and low. And that's all based on impact and likelihood. And and then to your point, you have that all within your organization. So you know the the infrastructure that you have running and, and the versions that you have running and which things are gonna be open to the internet, which things are not, right? And you can start to, to silo it even further. So you can take those risks and then and then apply them and then ultimately say, Hey, from that list of a hundred, the theoretical list we started with, you know, this is this is number one, right? These are the top five. Um, and narrow that down. So I think for a lot of organizations, that's that's the issue is they say, okay, we're doing manual code reviews to try to prevent these things from happening. And if you're using, you know, if, especially if you're using open source software, these these risks are going to happen all the time and you're not going to manual yep. code review it away. So so you just have to figure out how to manage uh, those, those modules that you're importing. Exactly. And it's... The amount of code you're going to have to code reviews is going to increase. It's not going to go down. So it, there's a scaling problem. 
you're just not going to scale. So you're going to need to have automation, these different things and processes and to help you. And you're never going to solve it all. You focus on the ones that matter the most. Yeah, I, I absolutely uh, agree with you there. And hopefully somebody really disagrees and gets upset because it will be a fun conversation to have about, you know, is there, is there value in code abuse? And I think there is value, but it, you know, it can't be your primary method of defense and, uh, should not be, should not be relied upon. Um, I, I actually want to change the subject and ask you about something. So before I do that, do you have any, any last thoughts here? <laughs> yeah. I'd say it again, just to emphasize what you were saying, like, I'm not, I'm not saying you should never do a code review. Um, um, what I am saying is we st should stop relying as code reviews as that kind of gate. Code reviews should be just another tool in our arsenal, but we should start looking to rely on automation more and have code reviews as so some kind of a case by case basis. Kind of, kind of like threat modeling. You wouldn't go threat model every single thing that you do. You do it on the areas that that impact you the most, or at least that's where you start. So something along the lines of that. Or code reviews. Yeah. Yeah. It's a return on investment, right? Is it, yep. is the, we only have so much time and so much resources. So where do we make the most impact with what we have? Yep. Yeah, exactly. Well, so one thing I want to ask you about is third party components. So when you're, yep. it, and, and this in your eyes is third party different than open source that you import into your project. You know, what's, what's the distinction there? Is there a distinction? Firstly, I view them the same. Like it's it's something being developed outside your organization, whether it's freely available on the internet or commercially developed. I don't see the difference between the two. It, it people argue one way or the other. Um, I think relatively the the same risks apply. Um, we've seen this time and time again, both commercial and open source have both been compromised. So therefore, they both present a risk and both have vulnerabilities. There's often this misconception like, oh, it's open source, so therefore everyone can view the code and check that it's secure and that, which ironically to the previous point. Um, like, firstly, the sheer wealth of open source code means there's going to be nothing. We've seen things like OpenSSL with massive vulnerabilities that have been in there for years um, and were only like found um, much later on. Um, so yeah. And then organizations, they, they might have better tooling in that, in that in place, but it all doesn't mean they're going to be perfect. So I think the risks are more or less along the same lines. Um, I certainly don't take a stance on the open source. I treat it one way, or this is commercial and I treat it another way. So yeah, keeping it all in, in that, uh, being skeptical, I guess, about being skeptical about everything you're importing and, and making sure that, that you take the right precautions. And, and so let's say you're connecting to a new third party and you're using one of their APIs and you're sending them some data. At what point do you say, Hey, the security team needs to get involved and make sure this is okay. You know, like what can developers, how can developers interact with third parties in a way where you're not concerned? And at what point does it become a concern to you? So my recommendation is developers reach out to security teams as part of that, that design phase before you even go down the road of interacting with that third party. Because the last thing you want to do is do all this work and then you find that third party is just 
absolutely horrendous and there's just no way that you could use them or you need to work with a third party to to get things fixed and and addressed and i've seen this before like not really development per se but a third party vendor who who did some things that were pretty significant and pretty bad and it had already been onboarded and and done but no security review was done and and it, it was a massive impact um had that assessment been done before would have saved a lot of time and frustration and all that so the most important thing i'd say is, is engage with the security team but also the security teams engage with development teams two-way thing and and making sure that you do the assessment before anything happens um it's much easier to switch vendors or re-evaluate things when nothing's been done than being ready for production. Yeah. Yeah. And so how do you how do you personally navigate that where you where you say, hey, are you going to include anything in your project I should look at? You know, like are, are you just asking that question and and offering your services? Or how do you manage getting people to be transparent with you about their design and what they plan to import into a project? That's a really great question and it's not an easy one to solve. Um and it's it's a really difficult one to solve. So I think one of the things is the security culture, the collaboration piece is really, really, really important. Um, so you develop this culture of security working with engineering and engineering working with security. I think that's really key to this whole thing. So we have a situation where developers go, oh, there's this new service, let's reach out to, to security. Not okay, we're just going to go and do our own thing because um, we don't want security to say no or something like that. Um, and you ask then security fight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, I've had that, those words said before and I just face prob like, yeah, we'll ask for forgiveness. Please. Um, but equally, so that that's why security also needs to be forthcoming in um, helpful for, for engineering so they, they don't be seen as these people like, oh, no, or they're difficult to work with or they're going to block our work. Um, you need to break down that misconception that security is there to say no and block work and, and that we, we're there to help and make things, e- I wouldn't say always necessary easier. We would like to, we will where we can, but help prevent extra work, extra friction, but also at the same time keep the company um, sec- as secure as possible. So yeah, um, having that in place and then kind of having some process where um, developers or engineering can, or even product managers can go through and, and do these requests and that. So it's less effort on them. It's tracked. So there's less back and forth. Um, track for both sides. So one of the things that pe- people lose sight of when you say, oh, you go create a ticket, it's like, oh, they're creating next work for well, if it's six months down the line and the security team goes, oh, we didn't go review this or, or whatever, they could easily go, there's the ticket. You guys approved it. You're, you're, you need to answer to that. So it it helps them as well. Um, I think it's a really important thing. Yeah, putting accountability in, in the right place because yeah. you know, ultimately everyone is accountable for their job and, and for what they're exactly. producing. And, and as engineers... You know, even if they don't want to think that, like, they're not the security person per se, but, you know, the the security of the company has, 
is very much affected by the work that they do. And so, yeah, it's important to, to be accountable and also to understand that there's, you know, resources out there to help them make sure that everything stays safe along the way. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the things is like, our oh, security is not my responsibility in that it, it, it sounds cheesy and cliche. It's everyone's responsibility and it will ultimately affect everyone or could affect everyone. So if you develop a checking in code that's not secure and suddenly it results in the breach of the company, um, the co- then you might find customers leaving the company and then suddenly redundancies happen and you may very well be one of those people being made redundant. Um, so yeah, so security is ultimately the responsibility of the security team, but everyone has a part to play in it and everyone can be affected by it. Um, uh, it's a collaboration. Like at the end of the day, we're all working to the same thing. Or I hope we are to make the company successful. So the security team, it's not in the best interest to make the company fail and suffer and financial burden and that. Um, we want to make it. We, we're there to and put it in the company and have it explode yeah. later. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we're there to help prevent risk and that, but we need to do it in a way that helps other teams do their work as well. Um, where I think that's something that we've, we as an industry haven't done a good job of in the past, and we've come to realize that, and it's something that we're working on and improving and continue to improve. But at the same time, other teams also need to understand the importance of security and understand that security is not theirs and no person that we we want to work with and we want to help them. Um, and at the end of the day, we're all trying to do the same thing. Yeah. And, and so we talk about security being everyone's job. And, and if you go onto Sean's website, you'll see he has a number of vulnerabilities he's discovered and a bunch of them have to do with encryption. And so it, can I ask you, does it seem ridiculous that at this point in time, you know, 2023 with encryption and HTTPS being so prevalent and so easy to accomplish that people are still hosting, you know, login forms unencrypted? Uh, how how often do you come across that today? Do you feel like it's getting better or is it something that people still are just oblivious to why it matters? It's getting so much better today. And I'm not, I'm not saying that like as sarcastically. Like, put it this way. I'm now badly to find HTTP sites when I go on Wi-Fi so I can get on the um, login for the Wi-Fi where you're going to go on HTTP. <laughs> like, oh, what's the HTTP site? <laughs> Um, it's, it's got massively better. Um, and I think one of the things that has helped tremendously with that is let's encrypt, not, not because it's free. Um, there, there are other free CAs out there long before let's encrypt. It's because of things like Acme. Now Acme means a one line command. You get a certificate, it's configured. Certificates and TLS configuration. This is probably why a lot of sites don't still don't have it because it's the general principle of it overall is not difficult. But once you start getting to things like Cypher Suite and that, it starts becoming technical very quickly. So if you've got a, a, a small mom and pop shop, um, they're not going to have the expertise to deal with that. There's no way they're going to be able to deal with that. Um, and they probably don't even know anything about it. And no one even know the first thing. I remember when I was trying to figure out first, you're like, what, private key? What, what? 
CSR, what, what's this? And then you get a certificate and then it's, it's very, um, intimidating is the one way I look at it. Um, but when you, as I said, when you break it down in simpler forms, it then makes a lot more sense, but it's still, you need someone to go through that and kind of abstract all the real technical jargon and tech stuff away so you can understand it. And that, what Acme does is just kind of does away with all of that and just goes, Hey, just give me your domain. Um, make sure you got port 80 open or DNS configurable and I'll handle everything for you. And that to me has significantly changed the adoption of HTTPS. I don't think we would have HTTPS where it is today without, without let's encrypt. Yeah. Yeah, I remember the first time I used Let's Encrypt, I was blown away at how simple it was. Like I had some errors I had to troubleshoot along the way, things that weren't configured correctly. And it took, you know, a, a little bit to get them all sorted out. But then it was, you know, pretty easy to work through them. There was Im information online about how to go through it. And then once it was done, okay, cool, we can now serve over 443 and we're good to go. And it kind of was shocking to me how easy it was. You know, it's like, oh, okay cool i'm done yeah. <laughs> all right <laughs> and you don't have to worry about expiring sets again because it just handles all of that for you again like one of the one of the things i've heard against tls is we don't want to use tls because certificates expire now i understand pain yes and all that well you use something like let's encrypt and that argument suddenly goes away so yeah it's the that's why i think it's it's been like cliche word game changer it has been a game changer in my opinion yeah and it's another step and we started this talking about code reviews and why automation is important and, and using the resources that are available to us to do a lot of that dirty work that humans aren't as good at and and let's encrypt is another it's another example where they say hey we're going to handle all the details this is a tool for you and, and it's available and you can focus on building the actual uh, thing that you're trying to build rather than to your point, working to the technical details, especially for these small mom and pop shops, as you mentioned, people that don't have, uh, the, you know, the resources, the knowledge um, to handle it. It's really important to have those tools available to make sure that everybody is safer online. And so it's great that, that they are available. Um, and increasingly so as time goes on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think there's uh, a bunch of other free Acme's servers popping up uh, or have popped up as well so it's suddenly come leaps and bounds there's there's one that i've even got on my blog post of how to set up your own acme server and your own, own network using something called step ca it's just it's just i can't begin to describe how much easier it makes you laugh um so it's not even just the the technical abstract in a way it's just making your life so much easier you don't have to hassle with the five certificates and jump through a whole bunch of steps to to get a certificate and then install it and then a year later do the same thing over again after you find out your site's crashed or not working because <laughs> the certificate's expired um yeah yeah well sean we're starting to run low on time. Before we go, I want to give you the opportunity to make a call to action. Is there anything that you want to say to the audience? Um, yeah, I, I, I think we 
kind of re-emphasize my point of teams working together, building that security culture. Um, I've seen many people, um, especially from the security community, saying how we're going to work harder with other teams. And I agree with that. But it's also a give and take. So other teams also need to come to the party and, and help security as well. It's it's in the best interest of everyone in the organization to make sure that that happens. So security do a better job of working and helping other teams and explaining why. Um, I think that's really important, the, the justification behind things. And then other teams also then seeing it from the security perspective, some of the frustrations they have to go through um, and issues I have to deal with and just being open to, to allowing the security folk to come in and help, I think is a great start. But yeah, um, I think that's my core terms. Perfect. Have everybody coming to the security party. Throw the yeah. end. <laughs> <laughs> great. Well, Sean, thank you so much for joining today. It was a pleasure speaking with you and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Great. Thank you for having me. It was a great pleasure and uh, honor to be on you. Yeah. I hope you have a, a wonderful day as well. Bye. Bye, John. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Champions of Security. Be sure to come back next week. We're going to have another exciting guest on this very streaming platform. See you there.